Let's open, in, let's open in prayer. God, thank you for what you have done for us. A plan that our minds and hearts may they always stand in a maze of that before the foundation of the world that you were going to send the Messiah, the anointed one, none less than God the Son of your very essence, God, to come and redeem, to pay the price for man's sin. God, we could not pay for one iota, one sin, that Jesus had to pay for all of it. We want to look at the person of Jesus and his supremacy, and may our response be submission. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Back in about a month, well, about a month, five weeks ago, seven of us went out to... Uh, to Utah, and after we had seen and done our hiking and punishing our bodies in various and sundry ways, we relaxed in uh, Salt Lake City, and the morning that we were to, actually the afternoon catching our flight, we um, went to Salt Lake City, and we made our way to the Mormon Tabernacle, um, and we met, actually as we were looking around, and it, the, it wasn't open yet, that opened at 11, I wasn't really planning to go into this place, I was planning to get into the visitor center, um, but as we're walking around, we met a man named Robert. Robert turned out to be the organ tuner. And his job is you see the big uh, metropolitan Mormon tabernacle, not me- metropolitan, Mormon tabernacle, um, and the organ that's, you see that to the, in the background? It's his job for 38 years. That's his full-time job taking care of that thing. And so we're standing at the door, wanting to get into the building. I had never been in the building. I'd been all around Salt Lake City, but never in, in, in the tabernacle. Um, he asked us if we wanted to go in. And so we, in a heartbeat, said yes. So we went in, and for an hour and a quarter, he ta- showed us this, this majestic organ and even allowed Eric to play it a little bit. But as we're there, I'm honestly torn because... Here I am in this cultic center, and I know who Jesus Christ is, and I know um, the truth about him, I know what the Word of God declares, and I know what he believes, and so wanted to get into it, but it was a, a rather awkward setting. You know, as we're in there as his guest, doesn't mean that I, I should have been timid. So at one point I said to him, to, he never asked who we were. In the middle of it, I just said, just to let you know who we are, we're Baptist by denomination, but followers of Jesus Christ and was hoping to get into a little bit more. And he says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he continued his talk, and uh, I'll stand before God if I am faulted for not engaging him. But I'll tell you about it maybe next week, then how I found a victim across the street that I was able to let out all my pent-up frustration for not talking to Robert. But nonetheless, you know, Robert took us in an incredible um, um, tour up in the balcony to see the inner workings in the roof, and it was pretty amazing. But as from As I'm listening to to him and what he said, this is really what Mormons believe. They're not at all a Christian denomination, though they'll try to sell sell themselves off as a Christian denomination. They believe that um, the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are three separate persons and three separate gods. Not one God, three gods. In fact, they believe that God the Father had a plan and he I first should say that he um, birthed um, Jesus Christ um, 
through, I forget what means, um, but it was his spirit children as Satan was also one of his children and had all of these. And so he met in a council with them and was talking about how to redeem mankind and how to set them. And Satan came up with his plan, um, but Jesus came up with a better plan. He said, I'll take on flesh, I'll go down to earth, and I'll die on the cross, I'll live a life and die on the cross, and I'll die, die for them so that, ready, here's the goal, so that they can become gods. The goal of every Mormon is to become a god. Um, it's to be married. If you really hit it up right, you as a young Mormon man will marry a young Mormon girl. You'll be baptized in, in one of their um, baptismal founts, and you'll be sealed for all of eternity. Then you'll get your own planet, and she'll get her own planet, and you'll spin off um, on innumerable spirit children to inherit planets throughout eternity. Christian, um, hardly. Um, the defense of Jesus Christ is, I believe, of utmost importance. And I want to give three reasons why I think it's, it's important why we need to be able to defend on what we believe. Um, it says in the Scriptures, in Matthew 16, 15, when Jesus asked Peter and the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who is he? That's the all-important key question that always gets down to the heart of it, of every person, whether they're involved in a cult or whether they are themselves a cult by believing they're good enough to get to heaven. Every person, the rub always comes down to, who do you think that I am? And I believe that this is one of the most important defenses or apologias, apologetics, that can be discussed for three reasons. First of all, and I, I, um, I don't apologize, and hopefully you're with me, I don't think a person can be saved unless they understand that Jesus Christ is God the Son. I don't believe that they can, they can have a proper understanding. It even says in Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord, well, who is Jesus? What does Lord mean? And then when it says in verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, quote in Joel 2, 32, that's none less than Yahweh. So it has to be a proper understanding. So whenever I share the gospel, I always make sure, and part of talking about, before I talk about who Christ is, I'm going to talk about, I mean, what he has done, I'll talk about who he is. Um, so that's the first reason that we want to know how to um, defend and explain who Jesus Christ is. It's crucial for salvation, for them to understand. If we're talking to them about them being a sinner and that this, this fuzzy person, Jesus, lived on earth and was a great teacher and died for them, well, but who is he? If they think he's just a man, then they have the wrong Jesus. And then secondly, why I think it's important is that this is the every area where Satan will attack. This is his number one area. I truly believe that he attacks at a per, the deity of Jesus Christ. If he could get them to people to doubt Christ or, or um, deify less him, um, I'm sure that's not a right word, but um, if anything less than Christ, then he'll win the day because they won't be able to trust in, in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So every cult will always knock down the deity of Jesus Christ. And not only cults, people that um, are lost people and just period. Then thirdly, why I think it's important, and I want to leave time at the end that we could connect it into Colossians 1, is that for us to properly understand who Christ is will then drive us to our knees in submission. If I can grasp continually, who is Jesus Christ? Um, what have you done for me? Then I should live a life that's in submission you know, not just go through the facts, okay, I know that Jesus Christ is God the Son, that he died on the cross for my sins, but really to meditate and dwell on that, that, that no less than God the Son took on human flesh and walked on this earth for me, that's the one on the cross, Jesus Christ, God the Son, 
the eternal one, the same yesterday, today, and forever? And for me to get that, then, then how do I dare live a, a selfish life? How do I dare live a life that's to please myself, how I not can live but to please him? 1 Peter 3.15, but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks the reason for the hope. Um, we're commanded to have a reason. We're commanded to, to have an awareness how we can give a defense of what we believe. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son? Then we ought to be able to defend him. We ought to be able to defend who he is. Do we believe that it's only through Christ alone that you're saved? Then we ought to be able to defend that in Scripture and, and explain that in Scripture. Do we believe it's not universalism, that there is punishment, that God is just? Then we ought to be able to show that in Scripture. We need to be able to give a reason for the hope that's in us. To say, well, you know, Pastor you know, Dave or Pastor Walker, you went to seminary and you have all of this training. and You don't need Bible college. You don't need seminary. You need to learn about Christ, to learn who he is. I should qualify that. That's important. Um, You just need the word of God, and you need Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, in you, and to grow by him, and you can learn all that you need to know. Um, So we need to be defenders, people that could defend God's truth. So I want to look at tonight three areas, and then we'll we'll get into... um, into Colossians a bit. Um, as we look at these three areas of Jesus' apologetics, um, how did Jesus use, um, how did Jesus defend the faith? How did Jesus defend who he was? How did he defend um, that it's the just shall live by faith? So we'll look at three areas, and I understand that there are many um, that we could get into, but we're going to start in John chapter 5. If you're not there, if you would turn with me, please. I want to look at, first of all, the testimony of witnesses. And we're going to end up in verses 31 um, and the end of the of chapter to see where the word witness and testimony is used many times. But we're zeroing in on the subject of witnesses. That Jesus' first apologetic was to call people into witness to what he's done and who he is. We're familiar with this story in John chapter 5. There is an invalid man who's laying by the pool of, the, of Bethesda. Um, if you go with us to Israel next year, we're going to go to the Pool of Bethesda, um, be able to see where, where, where it was. But we look in verses 5 and 6 of John chapter 5, and one man was there 38 years an invalid. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So he asked the man, would you like to be healed? Well, the man then explains his situation, that I'm just not able to get there and, you know, able to make it. And Jesus gives him this command. Get up, take, your, take up your bed, and walk. Immediately, strength pours into this man's muscles throughout his body. He's able to rise up and, and walks, carrying his mat as this stranger ordered him. Well, this gets the attention of the Pharisees, and an, an examination ensues and follows. Why? Because this incredible moment happened to take place on the Sabbath. So everything seems to hinge around the Sabbath and and what's happening. So we jump down to verse 17, uh, verse 16. And this was the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Then it says in verse 18 um, or 17, My father is working until now and I am working. So here Jesus responds to their they're, they're, they're the Pharisees who have a problem with Jesus having done this miracle on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, my father is working until now, and I am working. 
Something happened in those words that triggered the hair on the back of the Pharisees that they want to do what? Let's have picnic together or let's go out and talk about... No, they want to kill him. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only because of breaking the Sabbath, but calling God his own father, making himself equal with, with God. What does Jesus say that would cause them to want to kill, kill him and that they view his statement as making himself equal to the Father, in fact, making himself equal to God himself. That was their interpretation. And by the way, um, when Jews, or I'm sorry, when, if you ever talk to Mormons or to witnesses or the cults, just look at the response of the, of the Jewish people to understand what the meaning is in the context. They'll try to say that's not what he's meaning, and they'll turn to John 10 and say that's not what he's meaning. Well, that's what the first century people understood Jesus. Jesus never stops and say, oh, I'm so sorry for misunderstanding. I am just a good Jewish boy. What have I done? What, what are you understanding? That doesn't happen. But that's another, another day perhaps. My father is working until now. There's a problem with the words, my father. Because how did the Jews approach God? How did they refer to him? How did Jesus teach the disciples to pray? They would say, our father. But by Jesus using these words, my, he's spoken of something very, very special and intimate. The Jews never used such language. They wouldn't speak of themselves in this this close relationship. My father. I'm a little more comfortable to say our father. But 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 he's mine. And 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 they're 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 pretty upset over that. But look further. Jesus says, My father is working until now. So here he's referring to a, a special relationship with the one that created the whole universe, and he puts it into the present tense. My father not has been working, my father is working now. So he's talking about, about God's creativeness, God creating the whole universe, and God's present activity. God is active. God made it in the past, but he's active right now in the present So there is some intimate relationship that Jesus is claiming to my father and to his present activity. But it goes even deeper than that. And he's saying, as my father is working, my father is working until now, and I am working. Remember the context? It's all about the Sabbath. They're pulling their hair out because he did work on the Sabbath. But Jesus is saying to them that I'm above the Sabbath. My father, who I have a close, intimate relationship, he's working. He's working until now. He's presently working, and I'm just doing the same thing as he's doing. God's not stopping because it's a Sabbath day. God continues to work. And so they look at this, and they go berserk because they understand that he is claiming equality with with God the Father. You know, so we, we talk about the deity of Jesus Christ. This is really one of the the strongest, clear statements, and there's probably about another couple dozen, but um, listen to what New Testament scholar Leon Morris says, and he was really quoting J.C. Ryle. He makes this, um, Ryle Morris make this comment. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father. His divine commission and authority and the proofs of his messiahship as we find in this discourse. 
Now, if we ended it there at verse 18, we have a stunning statement. We move on to our next chapter. But that's just the beginning because the whole point is how he ends the chapter. Remember the point here? The apologetic of witnesses. What was the standard to establish something? How many witnesses did you need that Deuteronomy 19 says? Two or three? In fact, Deuteronomy 19 says, only in the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall something be established. Here Jesus, we're going to look at it, calls five witnesses together. And he uses the same root, martus, the word from which we get martyr. Um, it's translated witness and testimony in John chapter 5, verses 31 through 39. It's in verse 31, 32, 34, 36. It's translated testimony and witness in verses 31, 32, 33, 36, 39. Look at verses 32 to 35. Jesus continued this, the speaking to them. There is another um, um, who bears, um, verse 31, if, you, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Same words, witness and testimony. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is born witness. So he's talking in 31 and 35, witness number one, to present tying into that I'm keeping the Deuteronomic law, that I have more than two or three witnesses. Witness number one is John. John the Baptist bore testimony to me. Now he goes to witness number two in verse 36. But the witness or testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness. Testimony, witness, same root there um, about me. So second witness, what is the second witness? It's his works. So John the Baptist, now he's presenting his works. Look at his third witness in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. So he's presenting the Father as the third witness. And then the fourth one that he presents in verses 39 to 40, um, you have eternal life, it is they that bear witness about me. Talking about you search the scriptures. So it's the scriptures that bear witness. And then the last witness that he presents, though the word testimony witnesses and uses Moses. So he presents all of these witnesses in his apologetic to defend what he's doing and who he is and his relationship to the Father. And they accuse him of, of blasphemy, though the blasphemy word's not used, but we're going to kill you because you are being a man. You're making yourself equal to God. So the first one that he uses in his apologetics is, is um, witness. Let me talk briefly over the next one because I don't really want to spend much time here um, but the apologetics and the parables. This really could be a session in itself, and I, I was torn whether to go deeper, and I, and, I, and I decided just to throw it out to you. Look in the parables and look to see where God or Jesus Christ uses um, imagery that is referred to of God throughout the parables. Stories to just catch, catch a person's attention. And Jesus is a master storyteller. But you'll notice in his stories, and I just put five out there, in reality, um, one guy says there's, there's 20 out there, 55 par- 52 parables, 20 references that Christ ties in with, with, um, with God. But if you look up rock, shepherd, bridegroom, king, you'll find all of these references. And maybe you just will go through pretty fast a few of them. Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
um, God is referred to as the rock in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. Here's another example that is referred to as a rock. Well, we see that Christ in Matthew 7 tells this story of how building upon the rock, and he's that rock. And we could tie in other places also in Luke that um, we won't go to right now. We look at the word, or we look at shepherd. Um, shepherd in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, let me back up one, bridegroom. Um, God in the Old Testament is referred to as the groom. Um, he refers to Israel as the bride, and we see that several places. And we then go and see the New Testament. Christ is referring to himself as the groom, referring to that if, if he's with them, that they don't need to cry or weep and look. And it's, look, we see that in Isaiah 62, and we see it in, in, in other places. In Matthew 2, Matthew 9, 15, Christ refers to himself as, as the groom. Um, let me jump forward here to, um, let me go back one. Kingdom. Um, God's referred to in Psalm 91 that he has a kingdom. Here, Jesus Christ refers that he has a kingdom. You'll see God referred to as a light in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is referred to light. So you could chase that, that down on your own, but an apologetics of, of the parables, Christ is continually using imagery that the Jews would understand is used of God in the Old Testament. I want to ask you if you would turn to Luke chapter 7 with me, please. Luke 7, 18 to 25. The apologetics of miracles. Truly all that that Jesus Christ accomplished, truly all that Jesus Christ did, his works proves who he is. His works prove who he is. Well, the background is John the Baptist is in prison. Um, Things had not gone as well as John was expecting. Um, John had a completely different script when he understood that he was the forerunner of Christ, that he was the, to announce him. John, if we turn to Matthew, he was one that was looking for judgment, was he not? He was announcing judgment continually. In fact, it says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's John preaching. But he's He's waiting. He's waiting for judgment to come. He's waiting for God to bring forth justice, and it it just didn't happen. Um, All he sees is Jesus preaching these deeds of of kindness or or doing kind deeds and love and, you know, turning the cheek and love and mercy. So he he doesn't understand. So he gets his disciples, and he said, and he's in prison, and he's about to be executed, and he's confused. It's not as he was thinking. So he asked the disciples, his disciples, would you go to Jesus and, and would you ask him, did, are we looking for somebody else? Uh, did, did we miss it? Um, are, are you the one? And so we look down at verse 20 and um, are you the one? So they come to Jesus and they report what um, John the Baptist says and Jesus stops everything. He sits down with them, breaks out the stools and he gives them an incredible theological discourse looking at 155 passages in the Old Testament, how he's the one. Is that what he does? Does he talk about prophecy? Does he say anything to them? All he does, he turns around and lights the place up with miracles. And we see that in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases, plagues, evil spirits, and on many who were blind and bestowed sight. And he answered them and said, Go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. What is happening here? 
why does Jesus do all of these works and then tells them to go back and tell John, who's in prison, all that they have just seen? Isaiah 35, verse 5. The prophet speaking hundreds of years before the Messiah would come, telling what he would do, said, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then we jump to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart to proclaim liberty. So we see that he's talks about bringing good news. So all of these miracles, in fact, did you see one that he says to tell John what I've done that wasn't even listed? To raise the dead. So Jesus does all of these things, but look what he ends with. He says to preach good news to the poor. Well, what is that? He's reminding John of this, this is my mission. And he ends with to preach good news to the poor. He says, tell John, it says in verse 22, and the poor have good news preaching. Who are the poor? Who's the people to whom he's referring to there? The poor are those, and, and we have all been the poor. The poor are those that are broken by their sinfulness. The poor are those that understand that, that they deserve, separ- that they're in separation from God, that they have no way to have access to him. We're poor. We have no wealth. We have nothing to hold before God. The poor are those people that are lost in their, their good deeds, thinking that's the way that they can be saved. They understand that is not the way. Yeah, the poor would also be those that are called addictions, poor that those are being abused. But the poor is anyone, I believe, that's separated from God. I've come to preach good news. I've come to preach the gospel to the poor, to those that get they are poor, to those that understand in themselves they're not rich, they're not, they're not wealthy. So did John get the whole script? Maybe not. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm fulfilling what I was to fulfill. The kingdom, the good news, the gospel is being preached. So the apologetics of miracles, of Christ showing that, that he came to set people free to preach good news. By the way, to whom did we once belong? To whom were we convinced that we weren't poor? Under whose domain were we happy residents of? Whose kingdom did we march to his orders? To the one that controlled the darkness, the one that controlled the evil, the wickedness, the one that controlled alienation and directing his will and rebellion against God. We were members of his kingdom. But Christ came to set us free. So this one that is preaching the good news to the poor and setting them free, John, has to be stronger and more powerful than the one who's behind putting you in prison. He has to be more powerful than the evil force in this world. So the apologetics of miracles, all that Jesus did, God's hand had to be upon him to do it because evil couldn't and wouldn't do what he was doing. So it's really quite a statement as to who Christ is through his, through his miracles. I want to close with Colossians 1 and our last time that's left for us. This is just, just a, a quick overview in some of the Gospels, but I want to take 10 or 15 minutes. If maybe we could borrow, bump into a couple minutes after 8, but maybe not. Um, Colossians chapter 1. 
We should have put pastor on the hot seat and had him ask us um, answer about the firstborn, but um, I'm sure he would have done a, did a fine job. Colossians 1, 15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jehovah Witnesses, as many other cults, love to go to that, and actually this is one of my favorite passages to go to too. Um, but if a Jehovah Witness or a cult or or maybe a friend that's not in any cult would say to you, hey, I was looking in, in, the, in your Bible, and you talk about Jesus Christ, and we've been talking about that. I don't really understand. Um, Jesus Christ is firstborn, so he did have a beginning. So Jesus Christ um, is not, as you were telling me yesterday, the eternal one, that he's always existed right here. It says that, that he was a firstborn. Let's look at this passage. He is the image of the invisible God. Um, Tell me everything you know about the word is. Those of you that love grammar, what do we know about the word is? Past, present, future, static, continuous, active, dead. What do you want to tell me? Okay, it's present and it's continuous. Okay, it's not something in the past. He is the image of the invisible God. So here he's making a statement immediately that Christ is um, he's not made, Genesis 1.27, man was made in the image of God. He's not saying anything to that. He is saying he is the image of God. He's not made. So speaking of Jesus Christ, he is the image of God. And it goes on, and he says not only is he the, the image, the invisible image, but it says he's the, he's the firstborn. Um, he's the exact image. Image is, is representation. He is the exact representation of God. He's in the very image of him. He's in the present tense, the, in the image. He is that image. Not just in, in, in it, he is it. So he says he is the, the exact re- representation. He is the image of God. But he talks about the word firstborn. And, and we look at that and we say, man, firstborn? That's a hard word. Um, how many of you were the firstborn in your family? Okay, Sandy... Bunch of you here, okay? Ethan, boy, buddy, good job carrying on that Larish name. Okay, um, firstborn. So we think of firstborn meaning first to be born. Took me a long time to come up with that definition. But do you know that there's a secondary meaning? And it also means, this word means priority of position. So which one is it? Firstborn or priority of position? When you have a situation like that, and you're not sure what the meaning of the word is, what do you do? What's a good rule of, may I say, um, hermeneutics? What's a good rule? Look in the context. So look in the context. How does this word, how does it flow in the context? And let the context tell us, is it meaning that he had a beginning and he's the firstborn, or does it mean that he has a top priority position? So here Paul is writing, and, and just to know the background of the letter really answers it. Um, Paul's writing to counter false teachers that were Gnostics that were downgrading who Jesus is. They were challenging his person, and they were saying he was one of many spirits, steps to God, inferior, okay? Um, so that's the background. Secondly, um, says that Jesus is in a in very image of God, that he is the image, not in it. He is the image. And Psalm 89, where, if I could just throw it out real fast, it says that David is, is the firstborn. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the same Greek word as it does here. 
saying of David, firstborn. Well, David wasn't the firstborn. He was what number? What? I'm going to say seven. What number, Pastor? David was seventh, okay? So he's the, the seventh born. He wasn't the first one born. So clearly it's not referring to first birth, with David, the Greek the Septuagint is saying he has a priority of position. But let's look at the context. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. Um, P.S., J.W.'s have four times in parentheses the word other here. And they have in their Bible, for by him all other things. You see what they're trying to do? Bring in their twisted theology that Jesus had a beginning. But they... If, Push comes to shove. They've admitted to me many times, okay, we admit it's not there in the original Greek. Um, For by him all things were created. How does that prove that firstborn doesn't mean he had a beginning? For by him all things were created. It's in the aorist tense, so it's looking at the past. In the past, at at a point in time, all things were made By him. Well, how can he make everything and himself be made? Is that a fair question? So we're we're just looking at the context to prove what this word firstborn means. Jesus Christ did not have a beginning. He made made everything. But we move forward into verse, um, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven, earth, visible, and all things were created through him and for him. I mean, it is giving him the loftiest position. He made everything. All things were created through him. But do you want to know something? Everything was created for him. Like if I were to give you a present, I'll give you a great present. Uh, you don't need a comb, sorry. <laughs> but if I, if I give you a present, this is for you. <laughs> um, that's, some, you know, that's, that's, that's a gift just to you. Um, but everything was created for him. That's, that's a lofty position that only God deserves. But, but we keep going in this, looking at what does this word firstborn mean? And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it, it's, it's showing his supremacy of position. And then it says further, he is before everything, and, and he's holding all things together. It just shows how awesome he is. It shows how spectacular he is, that he's before everything, and he's the one holding it all together. He's got the whole world in his hands. And Psalm's really talking about Christ. Christ has everything in his hands. He's putting it all together. He's holding it all together. It's stressing his supremacy. And we're hearing John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. We're hearing John or Hebrews 13, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're hearing where it says in Revelation, he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Or we're hearing where Micah says, who's going forth hath been from old, from everlasting. So speaking of this eternal one here. But then verse 18, and we're going a little fast, but he is the head of the body, the church. Again, his position's being emphasized, how high his position is. He's the head. He's the firstborn from the dead. That is just showing the whole purpose. Okay, it's, 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 it's a purpose clause. He's all of these things. He's all of this. So it says that. 
So here's, here's why everything he's just covered in 15 to 18, and now says he's the firstborn from the dead, that here's, his, here's the purpose of it all. You ready? That he might be, what does it say? That he might be second place, right? That he might be third place. No, that he might be preeminent. Oh, what does that word firstborn mean from the context? That he is the preeminent one. That he's not one that, that, had, a be, that had a beginning, that he's made. That in everything he might be supreme. He's second to nobody. Because he is God the Son, one God in the very essence of God. Verses 19 and 20, I mean, it just gets better in 19. 19, well, 19. It's an awesome verse to go to with, with um, people that doubt the deity of Christ as in the scripture. For in him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Um, fullness, it, it's, it means completeness. In him, all of the completeness of God dwelt. You see what that's saying? But you can't start with 19. You really have to explain 15 to 18 to people that are questioning with the word firstborn because the context proves it. Then you land in 19, and this is who he is. In him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Was God all-knowing? Then Jesus Christ is all-knowing, the fullness. Is God all-powerful? Then Jesus Christ is all-powerful. Is God all-present? then Jesus has the ability to be all present. And on and on it goes. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Christ. But I want to bring this to an application with the so what to it all because Paul shows us the so what. In verses 20 to 22, um, he's just talking about what Christ has done. The fullness was pleased to dwell in him, um, that, that the blood of Christ was shed so that we can be reconciled, that we would be holy and blameless. So, so how, how is that to impact our lives? And I look at the word holy and blameless, and 2-7, we, we don't have time, but um, gratitude should just continually consume us. The word thanksgiving is used four times in this, in this epistle. Chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 2. As he's talking throughout this book, the supremacy of Christ, he's continually talking about a life of thankfulness. So how should I live in light of who Christ is? I should live a thankful life. So when I am bombarded with worry, when I'm bombarded with a situation that I might find stressful. Maybe it's a relationship, but it's not turning out as you were hoping, or maybe it's problems with a child, or maybe it's some relative that you're really struggling with. We don't have to worry. You keep being Jesus to that person. You give it to the Lord because he's supreme, and my responsibility is just to fall in line with him, to be submissive to him. And that's really chapter 3, verse 1, by the way. If you then be risen, if these things are true, this is how you're to live. Seek the things above. You know, if we're struggling in a, in a health issue and we're not sure what's going to happen and we're seeing that our days truly are far more numbered than we were giving them credit for. And in fact, it may be a year that we're told to live. Will we get angry with God and say, how dare you? What are you doing? 
Or do we get on our knees and say, God, thank you that, I had, have, that I've had any breath at all. In these closing days, I want to live for you. Because we understand he, he's supreme. He just might know the end a little bit better than you do. And all we're called is just to follow, to be found faithful, to live for him. Because he's supreme. And our response is to be submissive to him. And we could go through every angle of that, but that's this beautiful book of Colossians. This is who he is, and this is how we should live in response to that. And you see that a lot in Paul's writings. In Romans um, 1 to 9, I'm sorry, 1 to 11 is, is position, 12 to 16 is practice. Ephesians is 1 to 3, same thing, 4 to 6, same. But you've the book of Colossians. Here's who Christ is in chapters 1 and 2. Now, here's how we're to live a thankful life. May we connect it to, to Mission Month. May we connect it to Friend Day. See, we're blessed. You are, you are the most blessed people. May I say we are. This afternoon, just listening to that song, Jesus Paid It All, and spending time in prayer before the message and just enjoying this truth. God, you paid it, and I belong to you. I want my life. God, may we daily recalibrate our life. Really, daily, tighten the bolts a little bit. This is who you are. This is how I'm to live in light of that truth. Jesus paid it all. By the way, he, was, he is and forever will be the eternal God the Son, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He paid it all for you and for me. Put your mind around that, that God walked on earth so you one day could walk with him. God, we love you. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for who Christ is. God, may these great verses excite us. God, may we pray that people be brought into our lives that we could share who Christ is and what he's done um, for them. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.